back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where I have no control over my fader at all. Because <laughs> you have no control, man. This is just a weird day. We've actually been blown away with some sort of astonishing news from Nikon, uh, a company we hardly ever talk about, has kind of uh, flown through all of the news. But first, Devin, before we get started with the regular show, what, sir? Are I been up you to? celebrating this year? You know, no, no. I don't care about what you've been up to. I want to know what is the thing that you're going to change this year in 2016? Because you're supposed to do that whole New Year's change, whatever, make a wish uh, foundation. Nope. Uh, I'm just, I'm just gonna keep being me. Um, it sounds crazy, but it's true. Uh, I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have any kind of like regrets or I need to do more of this or any of that any kind major of stuff projects on the horizon. Yeah. I've got a few shorts. I mean, not that major, but I've got a, a few shorts potentially coming up. I got like two or three writers I'm talking about trying to get some stuff together, but um, no, it's, I, I never, I don't know. It's one of those things that I either am going to do this and I start doing it right then, or I don't, there's, it's very rare for me to reflect back on my year and go, oh, I should have done a lot more of this. Just because either I didn't think of it at the time, so it wouldn't have mattered, and now I am thinking of it, so I'm going to do it, or it just uh, is not that important to me. So I don't come around and be like, oh, I'm going to eat better and like work out more or something like that, because I'm like, <laughs> I already do that as well as I want to. Like I already get active enough or whatever, and you know, most of the time, half the time, my, my work is somewhat physically active. Like I'm already out doing that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I don't sit here and like build up a big list of like what I'm not good at and what I'm going to become better at because I'm constantly working on that throughout the time. Cause I think if you just come in and new year's and be like, Hey, I'm gonna, I don't know, shoot a picture every day or something like that. Then I'm like, ah, you probably won't follow through because you haven't been doing that for the whole last year. So why would you start now? Just because like, you know, we went around the sun another time. That doesn't make any sense. So I have far less, uh, <laughs> uh high expectations for myself. My goal for the next couple of months is actually just to organize this office at some point, get all my film equipment back out and sort through it and kind of take inventory because I have gathered up so much kit and now it may be time to start shedding some of that kit for the next round of kit purchasing <laughs> <laughs> to come forward I, I you get into this mode where you buy a bunch of stuff and you use it and then you're like well i kind of want this new thing and the new thing for me i i don't know what it is yet but i see so many cameras coming out that i feel like nab this year is going to be the sweet spot for possibly another camera purchase in my yeah collection. really because i'm looking at the gh5 myself but you, you think the gh5 will actually be something exciting enough to really I they're smart enough that they aren't going to uh, produce something that doesn't have at least some significant improvements. And so even if it's just it could even be small things, even if they're just like, oh, we have slightly higher frame rate and a slightly higher bit rate eh, and they decide to sell it for eighteen hundred again or something like that. I'm like, eh, that's good enough for me that I'm not going to buy the older model. I'll buy the newer one. I just I don't imagine at this point that there would be. It's one thing if you're jumping one generation, but since I'm still on a GH3, no matter what, the GH5 is going to be the best pick probably of the two, just considering like whatever ad added features they add. 
You know, it's much different if it's like you and you've got a GH4 and you're like, well, is a GH5 really going to get me that much? I mean, we did see that the uh, AS7S uh, Mark II, whatever, that thing went up to 4K internal. So that was a significant improvement. So, I mean, I, I you're right. The GH5 could be kind of minor improvements, but at least for me, I know that it's already going to be a huge improvement over what I already have. And it would just, I don't know, the, it, I, it would eat away at me if I went with the more economical option of getting a GH4 over a GH5, knowing that I don't have the latest and greatest. I'd cry about it. So <laughs> It's not the camera, man. It's not the camera. On that note, <laughs> I think it is time for the news. Time for the news. As I hinted at earlier in the show, I wanted to talk about this, and this is actually the number one item here on my list. And I say that as I bring up the picture of the wrong item. This is <laughs> the Nikon D5. Uh, this is impressive. Nikon has basically uh, come at us today with a number of announcements, really interesting stuff. And the first one on that list is the D5. The D5 looks to be a competitor to the 1DC, which has been out for quite some time. Priced at $6,500, it's far less than the initial price offering of the 1DC. And they've already got some very nice-looking footage from Nebraska, of all places, of the D5 in operation. Devin, do you think this is going to bring Nikon, Nikon back from the brink? Uh, I don't know. You know, that is that is, that is uh, the, the question I think that uh, all the Nikon fans have on their mind because, uh, as we talked about before the show... Uh, the D800 was supposed to be a big competition for Canon in the video market before things like the C100, C300 came out, along with mirrorless. So I feel like that kind of fell by the wayside a few years ago when they came out with that, even though it was supposed to be a solid video camera with a lot of solid features, uh, you know, dedicated headphone output and everything else. Here, I think that they've got all the right ideas. I love the fact that it's pixel-to-pixel -pixel 4K, uh, if I recall right, that's going to, you know, help to eliminate issues with Moray and other things like that and maintain sharpness and quality because it's not downsampling sensor data. It's just using a 1.5 crop of the sensor to deliver that 4K image. Uh, I didn't see any word on bit rates yet. And of course, it's super pricey. And I think it's going to kind of exist in the same way the 1DC did where everyone goes, wow, look at this thing. It makes Canon look really cool, but no one really buys it except for high end photographers and they don't take video. Yeah, I'm looking through the spec sheet, and I've kind of, before we started the show, I was reading through this too. Uh, not sure yet. I haven't seen anything on the Kodak for this guy. Uh, the problem with the 1DC was, A, the Kodak, there was numerous issues with audio recording with mm -hmm. video, as well as the price. Uh, if Nikon can release something that's, you know, a little bit more usable in the video range and much lower price than Canon's 1DC, that would be good. Now, the problem is the 1DC has been out long enough and sort of been cannibalized by other products so much so that just checking online at used prices, we can buy a 1DC. Here's one for four ninety nine. And, or $4,999, and you can purchase those on eBay for even less. The, the camera really hasn't retained its value because of the issues with that particular model. The other thing is that the 1DC is APS-H sensor, which is not quite full frame, whereas the D5 is, a, I believe, um, FX is the term that Nikon uses for their full frame mm -hmm. sensor. So... You know, full frame versus almost full frame. I, I don't know. Is that enough? Do you think it's 
Well, it's if it delivers that great of an image, I think most people are already used with what's kind of close to the equivalent of a super 35 millimeter image. Um, while, yeah, there's a lot of people who do like uh, as shallow as they can get it with their Canon L glass and their 5Ds and whatnot. Um, for actual video production purposes, I think that the full frame is not nearly as necessary as just having high quality video. It, it's interesting here because... Once again, it's a lot of video-wise, just focusing on the video portion of this because that's partially what they're kind of advertising about this. Uh, it's it, it, ha- it doesn't have any features. Like, it seems to shoot, you know, what will probably be really great video. They show a few samples, but, you know, it's YouTube compressed, what have you. Uh, but then, like, feature-wise, besides external and internal recording, uh, they don't seem to have a whole lot there besides, like, oh, we can shoot a flat image, uh, so they've got some kind of log that they'll come out with, and then they've got zebraing for exposure control, and like that's it. They don't mention like uh, focus peaking or any of that kind of stuff, or false color or scopes or anything else. So in terms of like an actual video tool for the price, this is severely lacking considering a lot of the other options you can get at uh, you know five thousand dollars. So I, I don't know because Nikon isn't coming out with their own series of video cameras. Uh, like Canon does, I don't, or at least we don't know. I mean, they might pop up with something at NAB, but uh, I think that they should just mostly focus on building a better stills camera. And I think that just like it's um, a bigger brother, uh, the older version, this does exactly that, plus a few cool new features. Like you can pick between uh, XQD or Compact Flash. So that gives you options uh, for how you want the camera set up for you and whatnot. So th- there's a lot of cool stuff I like here. And the quality in the photos and the 12 FPS is absolutely, you know, great and brilliant for a DSLR camera. Uh, it's just one of those where I don't think that there's a whole lot of compelling video options to go here. Just like the 1DC really wasn't a compelling video camera. I think even if it didn't have all the problems it did, I still wouldn't see a lot of people using it because of the price point. There's better dedicated video options. Now, it does look like I'm going through the specs, and I did finally find the Kodak. looks like you can record in either H.264 or MPEG-4 formats. Uh, This gives you 10 minutes of 4K recording at the highest quality or up to 29 minutes and 59 seconds. So the European tax dodge is among (laughs) us uh, for... Uh, regular quality or what they're calling normal quality. It does look like they're rolling their audio in with the file format so you don't have separate audio issues to deal with, built-in mic inputs, all the regular stuff. As far as a, a photography tool goes, though, it's really nice, actually, that Nikon didn't chase after the megapixels this time. Uh, this is a lower megapixel camera as opposed to trying to go crazy, 20 megapixels instead of what I believe... What's the current Sony at? Like forty and some change. Forty. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but, but seeing a focus on low light, I think that's uh, that's huge. That it shows that they're they're focused on you know uh, high ISO surpass the A7S or A7S two, <laughs> but definitely staying with it in terms of low light. And the D four was a very good low light camera. Nikon has also besides this announcement, announced some other film tools. They are now adding STM, which is stepper motor 
driven lenses to their lineup. If you're not familiar with stepper motor lenses, these are what you see in Canon's line of STM film lenses. They use a different type of motor to drive the lens and focus system, and that gives you faster autofocus in video mode if you need autofocus in video mode. But the problem is, and it looks as though Nikon will be suffering from the same issue, is that STM motors do not have the power to drive a lens as big as a USM motor can handle. So the ultrasonic motors definitely have a little more torque, and we're seeing that in this kit lens that Nikon has released with an STM driver. This is an 18 to 55 millimeter F3.5 to F5.6. So pretty mediocre across the board. And it's a kit lens, yeah. Yeah, and we've seen this with Canon's uh, STM motor or motor driven lens offerings where they're all, you know, F2.8 or, at, you know, I think this, the fastest prime they've released with STM is that little tiny pancake 40 millimeter uh, F2. Mm-hmm. Was that F2 or F2.8? Do you remember? F2, I thought. Hmm. Anyway. Don't quote me on it. Don't quote me on it either. Uh, I'm, I just started you know, rambling about this because I'm thinking about all the different aspects of this. It is interesting that Nikon is getting into that sort of autofocus and video mode. What do you think, Devin? Mm. You think we'll see a lot more uh, lenses like this with STM motors? Sure. Yeah. I mean, why Why not? Um, as, as long as, y- you know, you can keep inside of the this world of physics where... Uh, there's just so much you can do considering size, weight, power, and everything else that's going on. But uh, no, it's good to see. But I, I don't think that maybe they should be selling it as video. I don't know. I don't think anyone's looking at Nikon for video mode anyways. I think that they turned a lot of people off when they said that they were going to update the D90 to do 1080. And then they decided not to and just told people to buy their newer camera. And um, I think since then, they keep just looking like they're chasing behind Canon and so I feel like anything they do now, unless it's like coming out with a dedicated video camera solution, even if it was something like that weird Canon, uh, what's it called, uh, XD, DSLR hybrid thing or whatever that no, you know, no one XC10? likes. The XC10? Or we don't like. Yeah, XC10. Unless they come out with something like an XC10 that's centered around video, um, I don't know if anything they do here with DSLRs is actually going to make a splash in the marketplace because right now it's completely taken over by mirrorless. If you look at anyone's video of what are they packing to go cover CES right now, uh, everyone, I mean, besides uh, some guys like MKHD who have like reds, you know, 6K cameras and stuff like that. But everyone else, uh, you know, is is running around with A7Ss and A7Ss Mark II and maybe even A7Rs. Uh, everyone's got mirrorless. And for the most part, uh, Sony is dominating that. And that's what everyone's bringing because it's small. Part of it, too, is because CES said that they aren't going to allow giant photography bags. They downsize and say, you need to have a normal size backpack uh, when you're walking the floor. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting, but I guess that became a problem. I don't know. So a lot of people have been downsizing their gear. And so they decided to bring a bunch of um, A7s. And so I don't see anyone running around with 5Ds. I don't see anyone even running around necessarily with um, uh, cannons of any sort, T3Is or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so I just feel like DSLRs for video production and even slightly for hybrid doing video and photography, I feel like DSLRs are really falling by the wayside for dedicated solutions like the mirrorless market is bringing. Now, for myself, I will say that when it comes to stills photography, I still rely 
Get it? Still photography? Wah, yeah. wah, wah. Oh, all right. It's not I, clever well, I, when you have to point it out yourself. <laughs> the uh, point is my 5D Mark III is still my go-to for photography, period. Like, I love shooting on that for stills. And, uh, you know, the GH4, it's good. I love filming with it. It's a great tool. But when it comes to stills, it there's still something better about the look of a full-frame camera to me. I absolutely love shooting stills with my D90. So I still go out and shoot a lot of stills uh, with the D90. Now, moving on down the line, we've talked a little bit about Nikon's lenses, Nikon's new camera, the D5. Let's sort of look at this, the action camera. The action camera from Nikon is called, what the hell, this thing, man. Something weird. It's called something weird. I didn't include the name in my story, so I apologize. This is actually Um, Devin's ad. You know what? This is I. I just want to the Key Mission 360, say, an action a camera equipped with 360 video recording function. Uh, okay, let's just dive into this quick. The Key Mission 360. What kind of name is that? That has to be the worst name I've ever heard for a camera. The camera itself <laughs> it has two cameras on the front and the back. It's another entry into the 360-degree camera market, which has been saturated lately with companies like Kodak and even, man, Nokia has a 360-degree camera. Now Nikon's dropping this, uh, and this is not for sale yet. This is just to be announced and seen at CES. Uh, it looks cool, interesting, I guess, uh, Devin, do we need another 360 degree camera? And is Nikon wasting their time? Jeez, do I do? We don't need to have a conversation about 360 cameras every week, DJ. Um, yeah, I, oh my gosh, it's, it's like one of those. I know it keeps popping up. There, everyone's hitting this market, and I feel like they all think it's going to be a very big thing, but nobody has, I don't know, found a great way for it to interact and usability and everything else. And most of the people who I've seen have started using 360 have pretty much stopped by now. Uh, for the most part, it's just that the 360, you're, you've always got a soft image. doesn't matter what your bit rate is. It's just when you have that tiny of a sensor and that tiny piece of glass, because it still needs to be in a profile that's an action camera, you end up with soft edges all over the place. And by soft edges, I mean like the entire frame of the picture is soft. Um, and it just it, it lacks a lot, even when you compare to like the GoPros, you just get a way better image out of something that's not trying to stretch 180 degrees around itself. Uh, so then when you look at this footage, it doesn't look impressive. It doesn't inspire anything. And then going back to the conversation we always have where uh, 360 video is always something you need to interact with and that's not always ideal because uh, some people just want to passively watch something and enjoy it. Uh, but I do understand that VR is starting to take off, and most people are like, oh, VR, this will be the future of uh, watching VR. And I don't know, maybe with a joystick or something, but m- when I sit down to watch something, I'm not usually in a swivel chair. So it makes me har- makes it hard for me to turn my head 360 to see everything that's going on. I so, think I wonder what the price is going to be on this, though. It, it is interesting. At least it's not doing that sort of warped image look that you get out of like a, a Kodak uh, like bubble camera that they've got there. Uh, it, Right, but at the cost of softness, too, because I feel like that's doubly the reason why it's soft. It's not just uh, the super wide-angle lens uh, on a tiny sensor, but it's also combined with the fact that it's de-warping, and the de-warping is taking you know one pixel of data and stretching it and covering three or four pixels with very limited data. So the whole thing ends up being very smeared and very soft uh, because that's that's just how all these action cameras work these days. So 
the pricing will probably determine where it sits in the market. And I don't know, maybe at CES, GoPro will have something to say about 360 video because we haven't seen them do anything besides stitch them all together, which always ends up looking really good. It's a super costly solution and it's not convenient for anybody. But for, I guess you could say, professional uh, 360 video, combining GoPros have always been the best way to do it. Uh, so these dedicated 360 action cams, though, I, I, I just don't know who they're for because I feel somebody's going to buy one for somebody. Somebody's going to use it on their trip. And then I don't know, like them panning it around. Oh, let me show you this video of me. And they got to like pan to whatever they're trying to show the person or something like that. It's just so rare for when you're filming something for the action to be happening all around you and not just kind of like, you know, selectively in front of you. It so. might be nice, though, if this generates two images, one from each camera, the front and the back, and you are able to maybe do something like a picture in picture. So the scenery around you and your reaction, maybe like, uh, you know, if you're doing skydiving or something like that, yeah. it would be kind of cool to have that perspective in one camera as opposed to having multiple cameras to capture that same shot. Uh, if it's 300 bucks, I mean, that that will probably sell. Uh, or less yeah they'll move the units but but it's 4k and no one's made a 360 4k camera as far as i can recall right now unless you're stitching gopros together then of course you can get 4k um which is always interesting too because when you say 4k it's like well is it 4k when you fully have an unwrapped image or is it 4k on each camera or is your normal viewing of like 50 millimeters on that spherical image a 4k image so I so that, that's another thing that I find weird too when they like advertise 4K. I'm like, well, that could mean any number of things uh, when you're talking about 360 video because the way that it's uh, experienced is not in a defined box. So I will say to Devin and I's defense, normally we are a little more thorough with the news, but uh, these items <laughs> have just come at us like right CES. before the show. So these are yeah. all announcements that uh, popped up today and within the last four to five hours. So. We will dig deeper into these as more information comes out. Hopefully, we'll see more information as CES approaches. It's it's really weird that all of a sudden, after what almost an entire year of silence from Nikon, we are just getting hit with a bunch of random, strange, sort of an odd combination of items. Hopefully, it shows an improvement in a Nikon's sales because I, I, I would think hate it's to see Nikon. Canon be I alone. think it's Nikon struggling. I, I'm going to interrupt you here. I think it's Nikon struggling. I think it's them grasping at straws. Uh, when you consider that it's, you know, they used to dominate the DSLR market, I say that vaguely, because but both Canon and Nikon, uh, back in the heyday of digital DSLR, uh, they they were both the premieres. They're the two you considered, you know, um, if it wasn't a hassle, whatever, and, you know, anyone else. But now... Uh, they've completely fallen by the wayside. They have no video offerings. And now DSLR, the market share is going away over to mirrorless, even for photography purposes, hobbyist purposes, and everything else. I don't know, man. I got I, I to gotta say that photographers, as I see photographers in the field, they still are generally using either uh, Canon or Nikon kit. You don't Absolutely. see a ton of stills photographers running around with Sony A7 series cameras. I, you know, I know there are but, a few exceptions out there of, of prominent photographers that are like, this is the best camera ever. But the AF system in the A7 line isn't as good as you get in some of these. Oh, no, I I understand that. And I, I we it'll probably, if it ever happens, it'll be a long time till we see professionals 
using mirrorless. But when I talk about market share, I'm talking about most of their money is made from hobbyists or from families or somebody buys something as a gift um, and is made by the consumer base because there isn't that many professionals that are actually making money doing photography. It's a very small number uh, when you compare to how many people actually buy their cameras. So I see Nikon trying to push more into the consumer market by making an action camera, um, even though they're now the last people to the game, because like you said, everyone else has made one. And uh, otherwise, when people now like, oh, so-and-so really loves photography, she's taking a photography class, let's get her a camera, uh, they're going to start looking on, you know, online and see, oh, mirrorless is a really good option, maybe we should try mirrorless, look at how cheap it is, and look at the quality you get. Um it's just overall the market share is dwindling, and that shows in Canon having renewed effort in going mirrorless, um, as well as uh, all the other mirrorless cameras exploding right now uh, in the video space, as well as then for hobbyists or you know consumers. You're right. Pros, they love, the, and I, like we both said, we both love shooting with DSLRs when it comes to photography. We love that aesthetic and that feeling and the kind of control it gives us. I love my pipes. <laughs> and your primes. Uh, but when it comes to the business of it, I think that the market share uh, for DSLRs have been steadily declining over the past couple of years, and mirrorless market share has been holding strong. So uh, I think that this is Nikon like kind of struggling to try to find out where they're going to be. Are they either going to downsize their company and stay in the DSLR market, um, or are they going to expand out and try to be more of a consumer-focused uh, company like uh, Canon's been doing for a while? Now, with point and shoots and mirrorless. Two of the things that continue to come up in almost every show over the last couple of months has been A, 360-degree cameras, but B is massive SSD hard drives, and this is yet another case of that. I just threw this in the show notes because I kind of like it. That segue. It is a <laughs> Samsung uh, T3 series. This is a 2-terabyte USB 3.0 SSD. Price is expected to be somewhere in the $800 range. That is a massive amount of storage space on an SSD that basically can saturate uh, USB 3.0 at about 450 megs read and write. Uh, the current price on the one terabyte models of this are somewhere in the range of 350 to $450. It, at what point do we get too big for our britches as far as SSDs <laughs> attached storage is concerned? Uh, it's, uh, you know, that's, that is interesting. Because I've been looking at this for uh, things like this. Uh, not even this necessarily, but even you can get SSD uh, speed out of some USB drives, like at 128 or 256. And I look at them for, like, editing 4K footage on the go. I'm like, I can take a copy of the footage on this, and then when I'm on the plane or something like that, I can edit. But how big um, of a project are you working on that you really need two terabytes worth of space? I mean... Well, uh, if you're shooting 4K, then... Yeah, but you, then are you shooting a lot. Yeah. I, I, well, okay, so are you shooting 4K on, like, a GH4? Or are you shooting actual 4K from... You know, some larger... Uh, for- right. Well, because because GH4 does have the smaller files, because uh, as we know, GH4 is doing the H.264 uh, at only 100 megabits, so it's not obscenely large files. Uh, but no, as like a working directory, as a place to dump the raw footage when you're out capturing stuff and bringing it back, um, uh, two terabytes, you're right. I don't know exactly what would fill two terabytes except for like an entire project, like... Uh, you know, a feature length or something like that in H.264, I could maybe see it becoming useful for uh, things like uh, the Sony, you know, FS series, because they're doing that MXF format, what have you, which is a bit higher bit rate. Uh, but 
I want to say that's still only like two hundred, so that's not a a huge. It, no, no, it's not. It, it's not huge. And then if you think about it, if you were to do like something stupid, like you're doing raw on red, you wouldn't be using a drive anyways. You'd just be editing straight off the cards because the cards are going to be faster than this is. So, well, or work off proxies and then send. Right, off. right. You're not. Yeah, because you're not going to work on. But um, it, for me, I, I'm. I, I the one terabyte I feel like is a sweet spot. Uh, especially to considering the price. I think that's a sweet spot for, like, I want to grab some files uh, on location or on the go or something like that and dump them super fast. Uh, but I'm super excited for it. It's, it'd be nice if, uh, you know, USB-C and its 3.1 uh, standard could come out so we could get some higher speeds out of it. Because I've been looking at a few external storage options because uh, 10 gigabit LAN is kind of, you know, non-existent in the consumer market. Uh, and besides, you don't run you know, Cat th- seven around your house, <laughs> specialized I, what, shielded what's cable. The, I think, but still, even what the run on that only goes to like 30 feet or something like that. I thought it was short. I didn't I, think, I think it's a hundred. Uh, I want to say a hundred feet. Uh, also we were talking about 4k just as a, a kind of comparison, the a seven S mark two shoots in XAVC and that is another hundred megabit Kodak. So it, Really, as far as drive space goes, I've worked on some fair, fairly decent 30-minute projects that were shot on a bunch of GH4s in 4K, and we maybe ate up 500 gig worth of drive space for 30, 30 minutes worth of footage. And if you're doing just like short commercial work, I mean, you'd really have right. to push it hard to to really gobble up two terabytes worth of drive space. But but sure, if you wanted to be sure that you could hold anything that you could get on the on the day of the shooting. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. Two terabytes you. would cover. No, no, no. Two two terabytes would cover you. I don't have a whole lot to say other than I want one of these things. So, uh for for the most part, I've been looking at smaller versions for when I'm on the go and I'm trying to edit um because these external SSDs make sense to me, but I probably won't get any of these. I'll probably wait until Either I get a computer that's doing uh, USB 3.1 or Thunderbolt uh, on its new standard or any of the stuff that moves faster than, you know, kind of 500 megabytes per second. Because that's – or this one's a 450 because it's USB 3. Because uh, that's that's still where I'm at. Right now, I mostly move stuff around with um, uh, little slots on my computer that I shove SSDs into with uh, with a little door. And that plugs them into SATA 6 and then – or say to three, and then I'm off to the races. So that's, uh, I'm waiting for, you know, right now we're in this issue where the only way to get faster is to just have like built in M.2 cards or to like put stuff in PCI Wait Express if you, you really want hot that speed. Swappable removing SSDs from like yeah. a, a drive bay assembly. Yeah. Really? Yeah, because the drive bay assemblies are like, you know, I don't know, 20 bucks, 25 bucks. And then you just pop them open, shove the thing in there like a cartridge and close it. It's like using, uh, so, like, swapping between something like a Blackmagic Media Express, which just has those open holes where you put SSDs in all yeah. day, you just take it out of there, you shove it in the computer, you close the door, and you start editing off of it, so. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, one terabyte SSDs have gotten so cheap, I just threw that in, threw one of those in every single system I have, <laughs> and I haven't really looked back from there. I, I do like the external aspect, but it is kind of sad that it's kind of handicapping what would otherwise be an even faster drive uh, in an M.2 format. Right. If it's it a nice size. A it's a nice size, but at the same time, if you could afford a slightly larger size, the better solution would be to just get an SSD, put it in a USB 3.0 enclosure, and you'll get the exact same read and write speeds you'd get out of this 
for about the same price with the option of ripping it open and using that SSD elsewhere at higher speeds. Well, and they do have a ton of M.2 uh, enclosures now that are really affordable, and the M.2 oh, drives... Oh, I haven't even seen those. Yeah, the That M- makes sense, though. The M.2, M.2 drives are super skinny. They're like 80 millimeters or less, 40 millimeters, I think, for the 512-gig flavor. So you can get them in the size of like a lens cap and then put them into a little enclosure and then you know hook USB 3.0 up to it, and they don't take up much juice, so you can power them right off of a bus without even having to worry about it. Now, speaking of, of crazy prices here, let's take a look at this. Devin, you put this in the show note. It's, are you are you excited about the C100 again? Because, Am like, I? How many what? times do I have to trash on the C100? <laughs> to keep this out of no, the show notes. Um, I think I think this is um uh Canon's probably been waiting to drop these prices for a while. I've got a feeling that uh, the C one hundred is not selling well and hasn't been selling well because just about everyone I've seen either couldn't afford a C one hundred so they rent it all the time or they uh they bought a C three hundred or they rented a C three hundred. I see very few few people talking about wanting a C100 or using a C100 or anything like that. I just feel like they have a very narrow market. Most people, if they're that serious to spend that kind of money, they're like, well, I'm serious enough. I'm going to get the C300 uh, with, you know, the, all the features you get with that. You know, the, I like the uh, electronic selection for the ND filter and, you know, autofocus, higher bit rates, all that kind of garbage. So uh, I think that they just didn't want to drop it at the same time they dropped the C300 because they pissed off a lot of people when they dropped the C300. And here they're going to piss off however many people bought a C100 because this is a significant uh, price jump. And so I think part of it is competition. I think part of it is... I think the used market is flooded with C100. Yeah. 2014 <laughs> and early 2015 was like the time that everybody seemed to want a C100. And even I fell into that category in 2014. I owned a C100, didn't like it at all, hated it, got rid of it. Thank God that paperweight is gone. (laughs) But now, you know, you go look on eBay and uh, under two grand, you can pick up a C100 original version and you can get the C100 Mark II for under $3,000. It's it's so crazy that 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 much price drop. I think people just weren't super satisfied with it. And then when you compare, like, Sony's offering, I mean, Canon always has that Canon name, so they feel like they can charge a lot even if they don't exactly build a brilliant product. Um, that's just my opinion. Other Canon fanboys will have something to say about that. But uh, the when you consider Sony's lineup with uh, the FS7, FS5, and whatnot, you kind of compare that side-by-side side with the Canons, and you're like, yeah, why does the C300 cost this much? Because I could go out and grab a you know an FS5 and be rocking 4K and a bunch of other professional video features that are still kind of lacking on a C100 because let's face it it's purposely crippled uh in order to keep you know it in a certain price point uh compared to its bigger brothers like the C300 and the C500 so uh I'm not surprised to see it drop it's just one of those that it's disappointing to see because it will drop and so that leads us beautifully into our next story of the uh, the uh, FS5 has got a problem, it appears, with motion artifacting. So what you might be able to see on the feed, might not, because who knows, it's playing Vimeo through a YouTube capture, whatever, is um, some horrible gamma- noise, right? Yeah, some gamma modes uh, and uh, some higher ISO modes. That It's not super clear on what's causing this issue. Uh, but it seems like it causes a lot of blockiness in the shadows that like when you're moving the camera, 
seem to like kind of lag behind or whatever. It's very obvious and very evident, even if you can't see it on the stream because of the low frame rate. Uh, check out the link in the uh, show description to go to the Vimeo video. Something to consider. So far, I haven't seen Sony come out and say, like, admitting this is a problem or saying they're addressing it or looking into it. I've just seen a lot of people talking about it. Not to say that this happens with every mode. Like I said, it seems to be only under certain gammas and only seems to be under high ISO. And at the same time, it seems to happen both in, on the internal recording and externally through HDMI. So it does seem to be somewhere down in the way that it's processing the video for doing its low noise. Who knows if this could be fixed in a firmware update or not? There was, you know, that's there's the a question. great uh, post on Twitter, and a couple of people were just like, uh, they basically said, "You're doing it wrong." Uh, you, you know, do it differently <laughs> and you won't have this problem. And that's a really interesting approach to, you know, to to sort of spearhead the movement for these cameras. I'm kind of disappointed in some of the low light footage I've seen from the FS5. I was sort of excited about it, but it looks like, you know, above 3200, maybe 6400 ISO, it starts to get a little rough. Um, it's not as low light capable as I was hoping it would be for that perfect like transition back into a regular film camera. Sure. Well, and but keep in mind is that it's bigger brother the FS7 uh while being, you know, bigger and more expensive. Um is a brilliant camera through and through. That's kind of what's surprising is that none of these problems have shown up on the FS7 for all the time that people have been using it. And the FS5 has just come out and it's kind of been littered with these little problems. So it may just be a product taken to market too fast and it needs a little bit of uh, firmware updating. Uh, or this could be some stuff that really cripples it and prevents people from buying it. Uh, I know that, yeah, they're saying, oh, you're you're not supposed to shoot in that way. Uh you could say that, but it's one of those that these are some pretty glaring issues that shouldn't be. Uh, I, I don't know that that the shouldn't be didn't issues. The camera did come out fully baked, basically, is what you're saying. Now, yeah, I, I will I, say though, and this is another problem that it hasn't really been talked about much. Uh, I know several people that are shooting on FS7s, and they have a laundry list of complaints about the FS7. Uh, they want uh, firmware updates that fix button configurations, certain controls. Yeah, uh, there, there are some labeling issues uh, where you can't switch between ISO and uh, decibel levels. So you know, it's like. All sorts of weird little stuff that people have been complaining about. And maybe it's just because Sony's having growing pains moving through so many cameras so fast. I, Yeah, I'd say that that, I mean, because I mean, this is kind of... We even had the black of... spot in PAL format in, right, what, it yeah. was the A7S Mark II just recently. And I mean, that's a, right. that's a fairly like amateurish mistake to make. And obviously they know how to fix it because... It wasn't a problem in NTSC format. It was only a problem in PAL format. And, you know, with the FS5, maybe it's, again, like half-baked firmware to get this out uh, before the rush of new cameras hits the market and sort of create buzz and traction. And and it's it could be, too, that they're trying to, um, you know, be out there with the Mark II series from Canon being out there. They're competing on that level, and maybe that's why they'd release something a little early and happy. Because the only camera I can think of that came out and seemed to work without problems has been, you know, the, the GH line from uh, Panasonic because uh, their firmware updates are always like one or two things, but it, it's never really, they never really have, they either lack a feature that people really want than necessarily like, this is a problem we need to fix uh, like the a seven S has had. And 
uh, some of Sony's other cameras. I think you're right. I think it's they're trying to get themselves into every market competitively, and they may be taking some shortcuts in doing that. So now something really sexy, and this is sort of a, a side note here, is the FS700, which is also, uh, if you don't mind the weird squarish form factor it's a Mm -hmm. really decent camera uh it looks like it's dropped down to you know sub three thousand dollars on the used market that's a pretty attractive package for that pricing and i know the 700 is going to be something that's sort of getting phased out over time but man twenty five hundred dollars for a full-featured fs 700 i mean that's a pretty good deal it, it it is a really good deal. I mean, when you consider that um, you've you've got uh, 4K possibilities on that camera as well as up to 960 FPS, uh, that's still a force to be reckoned with. Even though everyone's gone on to like, oh, look at how great low light the A7S is. In terms of being a video camera, yeah, the ergonomics that that's one of the things they fixed when they went to you know this new FS line. But uh, that's also uh, you know it's not without its problems. But in this case, yeah, it's um, that's really something to consider because that camera still produces brilliant images. This isn't like when you take a jump from something like the uh, the five D to like a, a C three hundred. Like that's a huge jump in quality and bit rate and sharpness and everything else. If you took the FS seven hundred and put that side by side with one of these other cameras, you, I think you'd be hard pressed to really be able to tell the difference between the two because. They both resolve, you know, great detail and everything else. I mean, the newer ones, a little better at low light and whatnot. But in terms of just producing great images, uh, the FS700 has been a workforce. And I really don't think uh, it's necessary to retire that camera yet if you're, uh, you know, looking for some great images on a budget. Now, I'm going to post some links in the show notes here too, a few comparisons of the FS7 versus the 700. So if you are in the market for a used FS700, <laughs> uh, something to keep in mind. Uh, moving on down the line here, man, I don't know. I, I've i never had an iPhone. Devin threw this in the show notes. <laughs> so I'm going to throw this to you, man. What is Filmic Pro and uh, why should I care? I've never had an iPhone either, but uh, everyone I've talked to who has an iPhone uh, who has shot a little bit of video with it say that this is the best app ever that's made for iPhone for recording. You can lock exposure and focus and lock all these settings and choose a bunch of pro settings and like record, I guess, higher bit rates than the iPhone would originally record on its own, like all these kind of pro features. And so everyone's always wanted like the king of, you know, I get camera apps or whatever to come over to Android. But Android has such a diverse market of different devices and manufacturers that it's kind of impossible to make one app that does it all. Uh, but this is their first attempt at that. It, I think the list of supported phones is maybe like eight or 12. Uh, it's a pretty short list. Uh, but your newest flagship phones from Samsung is on there, uh, as well as I think like Sony Xperia maybe uh, and LG. So in any case, it's $10. If you're looking for, you know, I guess potentially what could be considered the best app to shoot a short film with per se. like that's weird to say but that's kind of the so world it, we live in now it's basically just access to all the regular controls like exposure and white balance and so on that you would want out of like a regular camera is that pretty yeah, much yeah and uh, as well as like having a finer control usually over things like 
uh, frame rate and stuff like that. I know that um, uh, FilmRite a while back talked about they used it when they were trying to prove that you could make a short film on an iPhone. Um, but yeah, offering 50 megabits of uh, you know codec quality at 1080p is kind of a big deal because most phones won't do that. As well as like you can choose between 44.1 or 48 hertz for audio and stuff like that. And you can actually set the audio gain. It's not just set to auto the entire time. So it's supposed to just allow you full manual control of everything. But unfortunately, because this is the world of Android, it does work on a very small number of devices. And I don't own any devices that it works on. So otherwise, I probably would have given it a try. Yeah, but, you know, uh, I never aspire to film with my phone. <laughs> uh, you know, I might shoot a little piece here and there just because, you know, there's something cool going on. But my phone is never the tool where I'm like, man, if only I could go to 24 frames per second on this and, you know, adjust the white balance a little sure. bit. Sure. It's just you hit record. I mean, I would almost rather shoot something with a GoPro than I would with my well, phone. Well, this, this brings up a good conversation because the a lot of people will say online – a lot of people who own things like an FS7 or a C300 will be like telling up and comers, "Oh, you don't need this. You can, you know, make a film on your iPhone. It's, you know, the cameras look great and the quality and everything else." And it's it's like they're right and they're wrong at the same time. Um the it's true that the up and comers should probably make it on their iPhone, but it's hypocritical when somebody is like I've got this big fancy camera I have to use, but you don't need something like that. You can just use your iPhone. Uh, I think it's just a lot of people don't understand the difference between the two because if you make something with an iPhone, those limitations can in some ways uh, breathe creativity into your work as well as because there's just less settings and less stuff to worry about on your camera, you just hit record. Uh, it will focus it'll get you to focus on the actual story element and you know how maybe you're gonna cut it, how you're going to uh, you know props and set design and things like that. It, it gets you to think elsewhere instead of putting your mind all about what lens am I gonna pick and how am I gonna do this and everything else. So uh, I, I, I never want to say that, yeah, I aspire or I, I'm inspired to go out and make things on my phone. but as up and comers today, I'd say it's it's the right place to start. If you don't have anything else, I'm not saying like then you don't have an excuse to, you know, not make great art. But uh, if you don't have anything else, it's like this stuff is in your hand already and you can already start working on the more important parts of, you know, filmmaking and making videos and everything else. As opposed to if you went out and got a bunch of gear, you'll end up like most people that just obsess about the gear. And then after they've spent thousands and thousands on their gear, they still don't know how to put together a story. So, and I feel like sometimes it's those people who have maybe spent thousands and thousands on gear, uh, like me, who then turn around and realize that they haven't learned anything about story that then tell the, you know, the young kids, no, 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 don't buy anything. Just, just, just make your story, just make your story happen and worry about it when you get, you know, better at making stories. Now, stop me if you've heard the story before, because I, you know, sometimes I go on an auto loop about things, but when I first started years and years and years ago, like maybe 15 years ago or better, uh, we shot a almost no budget feature length film and we didn't even have cameras. You know where we got our cameras? We went, the... no, we went down to Walmart and we <laughs> pulled a bunch of, of credit cards together and we bought four cameras and they were just, you know, regular off the shelf, junky, you know, uh, video cameras on DV tape basically. And uh, still shooting standard definition. And we took them and we shot as much as we could in less than a month. And then we took all the cameras back. 
and, and we, returned them. And returned them. And, you jerk. Yeah, and, and that's <laughs> what we did. And we, we managed to make a feature-length film uh, with that. Le- I know it's definitely low quality, but uh, the, the the aspiration to, to do that was it was really enjoyable. It was fruitful. The feature-length film was made. You know, it sold several thousand copies. Not a great film at all. Not even very good, really. Uh, don't look it up on my IMDb page. Uh, it's a long time ago. <laughs> but the point is, is yes. you can do something like that. And now the access to that sort of thing, man, if you have five friends with five phones, you can go out and have the same level of quality that I shot my first feature-length film with, better quality, in fact, and you'll have that in your hand to get going. I, I'm excited about that. Like it was inspiring for me to do a full length film on these cameras that we just got from Walmart. And for anybody else, it's the same story. And yes, uh, I mean, this is DJ in high school years and years ago. So obviously scenarios have changed dramatically since the yeah, early nineties, but you can't get credit cards that easy anymore. Yeah. They, they don't just give they, them to like 17 year olds. They like give they used them to like 16 year old girls being like, you can buy whatever you want. Oh <laughs> you man. Just need a side here. Every time they tried to collect on uh, one of those uh, uh, CD club of the month deals, oh, where it's like yeah. Columbia house has sent you 15 CDs mm-hmm. and you didn't buy enough and you're going to get arrested yep. whatever i'm just walking away from this mess <laughs> all right we got yeah at the at one last thing so look if you don't have a camera uh and that is what's stopping you from making whatever uh two things should come to come to my mind one uh that idea you're thinking of right now that you want to make uh is not the best thing in the world and it'll probably be the worst thing you've ever made what so so don't so don't sit and wait for like the stars to align in order to make it. Just make it, let it be crappy, and learn from it and move on. And then secondly, uh, if you're the person who's waiting to get a camera and this lens and everything else to start making your videos, <coughs> an inspirational cop. <laughs> oh no! Um, if you're the person that is waiting for that gear to show up before you make your stuff. By the time it shows up, you won't be ready for it because you won't have realized like what you need to do to make good videos. So if so, if you're one of those people waiting for your T2i or I'm going to get an A7S or something like that before you make your first video, stop waiting. Just go out and make it because it won't be it won't be fantastic. It might be good, but it won't be fantastic. And you still have a lot of learning to do. And you might as well start learning now while you wait for your gear to arrive you know, however, saving up or however you plan on doing that. So even people that make money for a living uh, shooting feature length films and, and regular short films and, and doing commercial work have shot really crappy stuff. Take it from me. I've shot a ton of junk over the years that you just get roped into, but you're shooting, you're always shooting. And that is the key. Equipment is also awesome, but Shooting, always be closing. Always be practicing your craft until someone tells you to stop. Then you should probably stop. All right, moving on down the <laughs> line. Uh, we've got one last thing I wanted to touch on before we get out of here. I'm going to skip over that Sigma Glass post that you threw in there. I mean, it's a waste of money. Yeah, buy some really expensive uh, lens protectors if you want. Uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on is basically just the updates to the DJI or DJI um, quadcopters. They've basically added some really awesome focus control systems as well as raw shooting capabilities. Uh, these were announced, but now we're actually seeing them in production. Uh, 
interestingly enough, uh, firmware updates and so on. These are freaking beautiful copters, and they're down, like, the lowest model is down to, what, $800? Uh, yeah, I mean, or if you're talking about the, uh, Inspire, the Inspire, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Inspire's down there, as well as they've announced... Um, uh, they're, they're Phantom 3, you know, that really started this whole thing off and started the company off. They've got a 4K version of their Phantom for $800. So that's pretty ridiculous as well. But, uh, you know, these these guys, you can set up waypoints um, or just points of interest. It'll figure out how to point the camera at the ground and, like, orbit around stuff, as well as just, like, the app that they have uh, is really well made and put together for controlling it. And now they've got a dedicated wireless focus system, which is a little it's, nuts. Yeah. And that Osmo system, you know, honestly, if that was around two years ago, I would not own any GoPros at all. And in fact, my GoPros resale values are, are so low that if I want one of those, I'll just have to go buy one. I can't uh, really get much out of my <laughs> GoPros anymore. Uh, they're doing a lot of great stuff in the micro four thirds cameras in their new systems man dji is just they have come out of nowhere in the last like three or four years and just kind of rocketed to the top and it's it's kind of been the opposite of black magic they (laughs) they came out of nowhere and rocketed to the middle yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry no because i i love i love black magic gear but i was just i was thinking about that today uh small small sidebar that um because i've got the pocket camera and i use it every once in a while and then i realized what's one of the things i'm missing from this pocket camera most people would say audio or something like that uh for me it's white balance there's no white balance you can set the temperature but there's no white balance and i think most people don't know that like when you grab your a7s or your 5d and you set the white balance it's not just setting uh, the light temperature in Calvin or whatever, 5,600, 3,200, what have you. It's also taken into account, oh, there's a little too much green in this image, so I'm going to remove some green or you know other things like that. White balance can make fluorescent lights you know, and other awful-looking lights work, well, not be you brilliant, but can't dial it work. in with like a gray card? Uh, no, you can dial in that level, but it's not going to curve and fix things that are wrong with the white balance. So... Like the camera will work great if you're using natural light or you're using, you know, LEDs or HMIs or something like that, or like Kino flows. If you're using studio lights, it'll look great. If you're like in an office with like terrible fluorescent <sighs> lighting, you can you can set up a gray card and you can sit there and like mess with, you know, I think it goes in steps of like two hundred Kelvin. You can sit there and like set the Kelvin to where you think it is. But I know that on my other cameras, it's going to actually fix some of that discoloration from the light. Where if you just set Calvin levels, it's not. It's just going to assume that it's getting really great looking light at this Calvin, and then it's just going to shoot that way. So it's just one of those things that I'm thinking, I wonder if the big version of these cameras come with a white balance setting, because uh, I haven't used any of the bigger ones enough. But you know, we, I've talked so much about the Ursa and being interested in the Ursa Mini and all that kind of stuff that I wonder if it's going to lack some of these basic things like like automatic white balance settings. Well, the pocket able camera, though, color was really pared down. I mean, you got to give it that. Like, they yeah. really did strip as much out of it to make it, you know, almost affordable. A, yeah. A cell phone sized freaking camera that shoots raw footage. I mean, that is a lot to ask from such a tiny device. So in that regard, like I would, ho- I would hope that they're bigger cameras. In fact, I believe they're studio. Well, actually, I don't know. I've looked through the studio menu and I don't remember seeing anything other than, you know, Calvin settings. So 
and maybe that's what they do. And that's part of the reason why it's cheap is because they aren't actually doing any color correction. They're just kind of setting a very basic color level. Um, but back to this, I hate the uh, Osmos, and I'm probably the only one who thinks that. You hate uh, it. But I think their quadcopters are great. I just hate the look of it. I, I've really fallen out of love with the whole um, stabilization. Look. Yeah, it's, it's just, I, uh, what was it? I was on a shoot um, that I can't mention the company of. Uh, but one of the guys who was shooting a promo for a large uh, news outlet, he was gathering some of his footage on the Osmos, and it, it just it looked like a dude running around with an Osmos. I don't know how else to describe it. It looked cheap. Um, I maybe it's just so the did people it who just shoot... look like a stabilized uh, uh, 4K image from what you would get out of like a GoPro. Is that what you're saying? Or... Uh, it, it more more like you know it, it has that movie look when people don't like rig up a movie or practice with it, where it just kind of bounces all the time as you walk. Because it's not oh, that you know, weird sort of free floating look that you get from like say it's, motion it, stabilization. Yeah, it, it's like halfway between a glide cam and halfway between like a robot, uh, like a, a techno crane, which is like a perfect camera move. It, it's super steady and everything else. Um, it's like halfway between those two. Like it kind of looks robotic, like a techno crane, but then part of it kind of floats like it's a glide cam. And so, I don't know, it puts me in a weird headspace, and I can always just tell. I can pick it out when it's that kind of a shot. I'm like, oh, it was shot on one of those stabilization rigs. Uh, at this point, it just sticks out to me. I'm pro- Like I said, I'm in the minority with it. Uh, it's just one of those things that those stabilization systems, I've kind of felt like, eh, they aren't they, – I, I feel more and more like they aren't for me. I mean, maybe if you put it on a steady arm and it really, like, locks down and everything, but that – I really like the steady cam look of it floating – uh, from older films and stuff like that, when you see that uh, as part of the audience, you're like, I don't know, this omniscient floating, you know, audience member or whatever. Yeah, that's great story. until you've had to walk the same shot like seven times to get it, and, <laughs> you know, or even more. And it's just it becomes this frustrating, horrible thing where you're like tapping people on the shoulder and like planting footsteps and marking the floor. I don't know. I mean, it's super affordable and it's really nice to be you able know, to have that sort of stable. You know what it probably is? What it probably is more than anything that I'm not realizing is it's probably just uh, it, it cinematography goes out the window when people use those things. Yeah, that's like, true. No framing or anything. They're just like, no one. Oh, yeah. Point the like camera. when people when people do those steady systems, they don't think about how to frame or set up their shot. They're just kind of like, oh, it's steady and it'll look great. And they just forget about the rest of it. Uh, so I, maybe it's just a combination of people who love using that stuff or usually people who are poor at framing or setting up an image. And so maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not in love with them. Like I thought I would be. It is a little uh, rough though, to be honest, like uh, keeping those sort of framed when you're, you're walking with them. It's not the same as the subtle ticks that you get from an actual operator running with well, a vest because he can kind of do those subtle motions with his fingers. But this yeah. you're trying to like use a joystick or, you know, set it up so that it's pre-framed at a direction ahead of time. And it, well, it can I'll, be difficult. It can be difficult. I'll tell you something that works. Um, you know, besides uh, the someone Scorsese, else to do it for me, <laughs> somebody who's yeah more experienced. Uh, the uh, you know, like your Scorsese and stuff like that. When they've got those long tracking shots, every piece of that tracking shot looks great. Uh, one thing that I was impressed with, I saw a Korean film uh, called Memories of Murder, and uh, it's in Korean. Their subtitles. Not everyone's into that, but I loved the way the whole film looked, the cinematography and everything else. And even though there was only a handful of steady 
steady cam shots where they're following something. I was always surprised because at first it feels like the steady cam shot is just kind of going everywhere. And then right on the moment or the thematic cue, the camera stops and it stops its move and it stops in position. And then it's a wonderful looking picture. Like it always landed perfectly and looked great once it landed. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people using these steady cam systems, they don't think about what's it going to look like when I start, what's it going to look like in the middle, and what's it going to look like when I end. Uh, and so maybe it's just a combination of that. Maybe it's because there's so little discipline compared to something like a steady cam, where you would only do a steady cam if you're already good at operating a camera and you're going to invest all that time and money and learning it. And now, since anyone can pick these up and do it, you just end up with a bunch of people who don't necessarily work that hard at framing who are using these cameras. So then I just see well, it. Well, and, and I go, it's a ah, team effort like too. When you're using a, a yeah, steady oh, cam system, you have you know someone running focus. A lot of times you'll have someone framing. You have someone watching on a screen behind them and like making suggestions that they'll walk through the move uh, you know a number of times before they they get the shot and and make sure that everything's perfect with uh, a lot of these things you know you hand out a steady rig uh with three axis gimbal to somebody and say shoot something and they just wander around and shoot a bit and they're like okay i think i got it you know like that's it done yep and you get sure, lazier sure. too you know you're like oh well i got 4k i'll just reframe and post no worries uh that's i mean i i i complain about that and that's guilt i'm guilty <laughs> i am guilty of just walking in and be like all right plop the camera down don't even worry about framing shooting 4k reframe and post don't care here's your shot of an interview congratulations you paid me money you know that's like that's yeah that's you, poor you filmmaking but sometimes Good. you get paid less than your day rate and you sure kind of sure and you're just you're trying to get through the day um uh, a, a tip for people who are doing quadcopters i'd say is uh remember the rule of thirds i'm so tired of seeing quadcopter videos where the subject is always centered or it's landscapes uh you know mix it up a bit put somebody in a bottom third or you know put like the the building of interest in a top it? third yeah <laughs> I love it. This whole steady system is built around keeping the camera perfectly level. And DJ's like, yeah, but there's got to be a way to Dutch it, right? I got to figure out how to make that <laughs> get my go Dutch a little shot. sideways. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Thanks, guys. People are like hanging fish weights off the side of the camera just so it droops like it's <laughs> broken. It's got a problem. No, um, but uh, there's there's a... Uh, uh, there's a, probably a middle ground between these things because I really hate shaky cam as well. And yeah, I, that, we all do. That makes me nauseous even and watching. And shaky cam has gotten worse with cameras getting smaller and lighter, as we've discussed before. So. Yeah, plus people shooting on 5D Mark Threes with the Jello cam going on and all sorts of artifacting and weirdness as they fly around the screen with this camera. I can't yeah. handle it anymore. Uh, all right. Yeah. That is enough. We've kind of that is dove enough. into everything. We've ranted a bit. It is getting later into the evening for both of us. Thanks, Devin, for coming in on a Tuesday instead of a Sunday. And of course. On that note, guys, Devin, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Uh, you can just tweet me on Twitter. Become Follow me, please. I'm so lonely. <laughs> uh, at DevoCut. You can follow me on Twitter. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, anywhere else podcasts are distributed. Be sure to swing by, rate, and review as needed. Put your questions in the YouTube comments section because Devin and I both read through those on a regular basis. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Podcast.